Well, did you miss it? A year and a half ago, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI published an essay that should have sent shockwaves throughout the entire church and the world. I talked about it on Happy Hour back in uh, April of last year, and I said at the time that we would surely be returning to it, uh, not only because what the Pope Emeritus said definitely bears repeating, but because I was anxious to to hear the reaction of the Catholic commentariat, how people would would respond to this bombshell essay. And it, it wasn't so much the content of Benedict XVI's remarks, because it had all been said before, but never by someone so highly placed. Uh, you know, we're not talking about some, some traditional Catholic priest in a, in a little parish church somewhere or some Catholic uh, blogger, you know, conspiracy theorist. We're talking about, um, you know, one of the premier Catholic theologians uh, in the world and uh, one of the premier theologians of his generation who was the, uh, was the head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith and uh, was even Pope, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. Now, unfortunately, you know, I, I mean, the things that came out of that were, were just staggering. But it didn't fit the narrative. It didn't fit the narrative of the modernists or the conservatives. So the reaction from the mainstream Catholic press was uh, pretty much a, a hearty round of indifference. And those uh, remarks were quickly forgotten. They were brushed uh, under the rug, so to speak. And uh, it is the doom of men that they forget. So we're going to be looking at it fresh a little later in, on in the show. And also be talking about, if we have time, the power in your own life of the power of the sense of awe, the fear of the Lord, and what that can mean for you and for me. But first, speaking of papal teaching, uh, it's been some months since we have visited St. John Paul II's no-nonsense plan for Catholics in the third millennium. His encyclical from 2001, Novo Millennio Eniunte, as we enter the new millennium. It is foundational to no-nonsense Catholicism, and I promised at the time to revisit it regularly, uh, when I I say at the time when we launched this program, and I figure if Terry and Jesse can share their five stones uh, pretty much on every single program, then we can certainly visit uh, St. John Paul II's pastoral plan every six months or so. Now, and, and it's especially because Novo Millennio Eniunte, as we entered the new millennium, was a genuinely historic papal document. Because uh, literally, for the first time in the history of history, you have a pope uh, presenting a pastoral plan for the entire church. You know, the very word pastoral suggests giving counsel on, on application of spiritual principles to Uh, specific people and specific circumstances. But here we have a pastoral program uh, presented on, you know, the Pope's own initiative that is intended for everyone everywhere. And that's that's unique. And without further ado, just quickly, the um, the points of the program are to become more holy, to engage in a, a prayerful conversation with God, centering our lives upon the Eucharist, participating in frequent confession uh, living by grace and the uh, listening to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, meditating on Scripture and the Catechism, and to bring the gospel of truth to a dark world, which is, say, the new evangelization. And there is actually an eighth point as well, which we'll get to uh, probably in the next segment. But I want to take a look at these and just kind of unpack them a little bit and talk about um, why this is important for us in the new millennium. 
John Paul II <clears throat> was a saint, and he was near the end of his pontificate, and we were entering into a, a new millennium and a new phase of history, as it turns out. And he, I think he was quite prescient in his program for the church. And you notice there's nothing here about, uh, you know, ecumenism or, or communion for the divorced and remarried or you know, any, any of these kind of weird hot-button issues that have come along. Um, rather... It is a seven-step program that, um, well, should probably sound familiar. Uh, first on the list is holiness, to actively strive to become more holy. It's a theme that we often return to here on the program and was a theme of Happy Hour and Shield of Faith. All the work that I've done has always centered on the what the medievals called the quest for Christian perfection. That was the hallmark of, of the uh, Catholicism of the Age of Faith. And, you know, the, the society that, that built Christendom gave us the greatest civilization the world has ever known. And it was a hallmark of uh, Catholicism, you know, in the very earliest days in the ministry of our Lord himself. And it was all reiterated at Vatican II. Uh, speaking of historical documents and historical pastoral documents, um, Vatican II put out a document called Axiosa. Um, let's see, uh, Apostolicum Axiositatem, which was the first ever encyclical devoted specifically to the laity of the church. And in Apostolicum Axiositatem, the council says the laity must take up the renewal of the temporal order as their own special obligation. Now, it is uh, the, the role of lay people to sanctify the secular order. And what does that mean? Well, it means to make the world and especially the world outside the confines of the four walls of, of your parish church, more holy. And that's a, clearly, this is a, a big deal. This is a big task, certainly. Um, and it is uh, an axiom, of course, that you cannot give what you do not have. And so if we are meant to make the world holier, we must begin by making ourselves holier. And that's why in um, the Vatican II document, the Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, in Chapter 5, it says, and I quote, the Lord Jesus, the divine teacher and model of all perfection, preached holiness of life to each and every one of his disciples of every condition. All the Christian faithful of whatever rank or status are called to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of charity. This is the quest for Christian perfection that Vatican II, they uh, call it the universal call to holiness. And as we enter the new millennium, this uh, letter from John Paul II provides a concrete pastoral program to follow that call. So first, to sincerely strive to be more holy. Number two is prayer, and prayer as a conversation with God. You know, uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen said that prayer is a dialogue. We speak to God, but we also listen and we've been talking about the Middle Ages uh, obliquely here. Uh, there's a movie called Lady Hawk back from the 1980s, which is based on a old medieval story about a, a knight and a lady and um, a bishop <laughs> and uh, other chess pieces. No. Um, and there's a, a character, the, really the main character of the story is a thief named Philippe Gaston, Philippe the Mouse. And throughout the film, uh, Philippe, as portrayed by Matthew Broderick, keeps up a running dialogue with God. Every circumstance he finds himself in, and of course he's, he's quite the rascal, but in every circumstance he's always talking directly to our Lord in that very personal 
kind of way. And that's the thing. We need to, to recognize that our prayers are a dialogue, that we talk, but we also listen. If you go back to 1 Samuel, when, when the boy Samuel is in the temple with Eli, the high priest, and they're uh, asleep, and he's near the Ark of the Covenant, the Scripture tells us, which, of course, is where the presence of God would come and, and be among the people. And he hears a voice calling to him, Samuel. And he gets up, and he goes into uh, the high priest and says, did you call me? And Eli says, no, no, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And he goes back to sleep, and he hears the voice again, Samuel, calling to him. And he goes again to the high priest, and it happens a third time. And, uh, and Eli says, look, if it happens again, uh, you know, maybe it's God, because <laughs> it's not me. So and this is my paraphrase, of course. So he says, if you hear the voice again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And that is what we need to do. I, way back, speaking of the Middle Ages again, Catherine of Siena is famous for um, uh, an exchange where someone asked her, why was, why was there there's so many more miracles in the ancient church than there are today? You know, this is in the 1400s we're talking about. Why, why was there so much more than there is today? And she says, because back then the watchword was, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, and now it's, listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. And this has been reiterated, of course, by, by spiritual uh, writers and, and uh, preachers and so forth, including Fulton Sheen, all, you know, all the way up to our own time. But it's true. If you are going to talk to God, you need to listen as well. So you need, in your own personal prayer time, to make time to be silent and just you know, listen to what God might have to say, and also to be aware throughout your life, because God speaks to us in many ways. Uh, through the, the events in our life and the, the people that we meet and, and the, the inspirations that come to us in uh, odd moments sometimes. And we just need to be, to be aware. We need to be sensitive to those things. And especially, of course, the Holy Scriptures. St. Augustine said that we speak to God when we pray, and he answers when we read the Scripture. And I think that's one of the reasons that the divine office is uh, an important um, official liturgy of the Church, the liturgy of the hours, because you're praying, but you're praying in the words of Scripture. So as you pray to God with his own inspired words, he, those inspired words are ministering to you at the same time, and it is uh, reciprocal, and that's a beautiful thing. So that's number two, prayer is a conversation with God. Number three is centering our lives on the Eucharist. And this, of course, was really central to the pontificate of John Paul II. He was a great promoter of Eucharistic devotion, uh, he is the one who, who said that the Holy Eucharist contains the Church's entire spiritual wealth. It is the summit of Catholic devotion. You should be devoted to the Eucharist because, unlike all the other sacraments, all the sacraments give us God's grace, but only in the Holy Eucharist is Christ physically present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and that we receive not only the grace, but we actually receive Him when we receive Holy Communion. And so... Uh, the Holy Eucharist needs to be at the center of our own spirituality. Um, there's a wonderful book by Father Paul O'Sullivan called The Wonders of the Mass, you know, and it was John Paul who, in Ecclesia Eucharistia, who said that the Mass is the source and summit of the Christian life because it's there that we encounter the Holy Eucharist. Okay, back with more of uh, John Paul II's pastoral plan. Also, coming back to talk about Benedict XVI's bombshell encyclical from uh, last year. All that and more when we return with No-Nonsense Catholic. Stay with us right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Join VMPR live on YouTube September 12, 2020 for our latest free conference, The Ultimate Challenge. This exclusive virtual event will feature a brand new talk from Jesse Romero, How Apologetics Brought Me Back to Faith, plus never-before-broadcast video presentations from Father Mitch Pacwa, Dr. Scott Hahn, and the late, great Father Benedict Groeschel. And the question is, how do you understand the words of Jesus, this is my body, not this bread is my body, but this is my body, this is the cup of my blood. And may I state categorically and emphatically that you can not understand it. It is a mystery. Go to vmpr.org to register now and get ready to face the ultimate challenge. Absolutely mysterious. If you shop on Amazon.com, there's an easy way to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Just visit smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center under the desired charity. Now, when you log into your Amazon account and purchase products, a portion of it will automatically go to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio at no cost to you. Thanks in advance for supporting CRC and VMPR, and may God richly bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Matthew Arnold here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, talking about John Paul II's seven-step, uh, really eight-step pastoral plan for Catholics in the new millennium. Uh, the first three steps, gone over that holiness, prayer is a conversation with God, centering our lives on the Eucharist. Number four, frequent confession, regular confession. Of course, uh, in these times of the COVID-19, both uh, approaching our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament and approaching His mercy in the sacrament of penance have been, you know, rather restricted for a great number of us. But, uh, you know, under normal circumstances, and really under all circumstances, you should be making a, an examination of conscience and a sincere act of contrition every single day, and then regularly going to confession. Now, I'm not going to harp on that. It's something we talk about a lot. In fact, even just last week, we are talking about both the Holy Eucharist and uh, the sacrament of confession, and that falls uh, under the blanket of the next point, which was to live by grace. Living by grace, really a sacramental life, which is the thing that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, because my son just got confirmed and, and uh, brought it home to me and wanted to share those things with you. But, you know, as an instructor of uh, RCIA for the last, oh, it's coming on 10 years now, um, it has been my pleasure to tell people that the Holy Spirit, that grace comes before faith. 
that the Holy Spirit's already at work in your life. People who uh, come, you know, to RCIA and they say, well, I'm just, I wanted to find out about it. I'm just here to, to learn about Catholicism and, you know, so forth. And, and I tell them, you know, well, the Holy Spirit's already moving in your life. Nobody comes to Jesus, you know, apart from the Holy Spirit. No one comes to the Father and, you know, or no one comes to me unless the, the Father draw him. And that is done through the love between the Father and the Son, which is the Holy Spirit. And so even before our response of faith, we have God reaching out to us through grace. And we have also the grace of vocation. Those of us who are married, those of us who are in holy orders, have that special grace to live out uh, our calling in life. And that's something we need to, to cooperate with those graces through, you know, frequent reception of Holy Communion, regular confession, and, and calling upon the, the grace of um, the, the sacrament of our vocation, whether we're, you know, a, a priest or whether you're a married person. And even single people, of course, calling upon the grace of their confirmation, all Christians calling upon the grace of their confirmation and their baptism. The Holy Spirit that lives in us and has given us the uh, great gifts of the Holy Spirit through which we can then bear the fruit of the Spirit, which again we talked about last week. So to live by grace. And then we have number uh, number six is, that was number five actually, number six is meditation on Scripture and the Catechism. I like that. Scripture and the Catechism. In other words, Scripture and tradition. I mean, that's what the Catechism is. You know, that that's uh, our tradition uh, is largely the way that we understand Scripture. And, and that's an important point. You can't take Scripture as a starting point. Can't take Scripture as a jumping-off point. You know, take up the Bible and, and treat it like it's, uh, you know, start your own religion in 10 easy lessons. That's not the point of gathering all these books and letters and histories and poetry and, and proverbs and so forth all together in one volume. It's not, it's not a do-it-yourself book. And so, and it's important, too, for, for scholars, you know, for theologians to understand this, that the, the, the Bible and your interpretation of it, that's not your jumping off point. The church's understanding, the church's teaching, that's the context in which you live and move and have your being. That's, that's the fence that keeps you from falling off the cliff. <laughs> you know, um, I think it was Billy Graham years ago said that, uh, show me a man whose Bible has fallen apart and I'll show you a man whose life isn't. And I've got my falling apart Bible right here. There it is. Uh, but I would add to that, show me a man whose catechism is falling apart, <laughs> and I'll show you a man whose faith is not. Okay, so meditation on Scripture and the catechism. And then number seven, to bring the light of the gospel into a dark world. In other words, to participate in evangelization and the new evangelization. And what's new about the new evangelization? What, what is it? Well, when John Paul II, I believe, is using that term, he's speaking of what... Um, Oh, Scott Hahn talked about it years ago when I was working at St. Joseph Communications, and the, the title we came up for his series was Evangelizing the Baptized. And it's that so many of us have been sacramentalized Catholics, but not really evangelized. How many Catholics are out there that, that don't, you know, have a personal relationship with our Lord or wouldn't think of themselves as having one? who don't even, you know, think of those in those terms, or maybe don't even believe that you can have a personal relationship with God. So it's important that we evangelize, uh, beginning with Catholics. We have to start here. And of course, the majority of Catholics who do not practice uh, is a rich mission field beyond then uh, outside the confines 
of uh, that sacrament. So those are the seven points. And I remember that the first time I encountered this was through the work of Father Bill McCarthy out in, in Cromwell, Connecticut. I went to, to speak at his retreat house out there. And he gave me a book on the Eucharist, uh, which is largely a collection of the encyclicals and writings of Pope John Paul II, and it included this as we entered the third millennium. And he shared that with me, and I was really struck by it. But then I said, Father, where's the rosary? I mean, John Paul II is, the, he wasn't a saint yet at that time, but he's the Marian Pope. How is it that the Blessed Virgin Mary didn't find her way into this pastoral plan? And he says, of course, that uh, she did, but it was its own encyclical. The very next year, in 2002, John Paul II put out the document, uh, Rosarium Virginis Mariae, the Rosary of the Virgin Mary. And he uh, you know, encouraged Catholics to say the Rosary again, because so many people after the, after the council, they stopped saying the Rosary. And, and so he said, no, you need to pick up the rosary. You need to be close to Mary in order to get close to Jesus, which, of course, you know, goes back to St. Bernard of Clairvaux and all the stuff that we always talk about here on No Nonsense Catholic. But, and, of course, that encyclical became notorious because he introduced the luminous mysteries, and some people got miffed and said, oh, he's trying to change the rosary and so forth, something else that we've uh, spoken about. The important thing, of course, is that he was uh, encouraging Marian devotion, and that, that Marian devotion is the key to living out that seven-step program. And I remember, and Father Bill was telling me about this, I'm going, I remember Rosarium Maria Virginis, you know, and I don't recall that, you know. Maybe you're kind of reading into this. You're you're kind of sort of saying, no, it really is here by grafting this on. And he took me right to a quote from St. John Paul II from Rosarium Virginis Maria, where it says, and I quote, the rosary represents a most effective means of fostering among the faithful that commitment to the contemplation of the Christian mystery that I have proposed in my apostolic letter, Novo Millennio Eniente. The rosary helps us to be conformed ever more closely to Christ until we attain true holiness. And so it really is, it really is the eighth plank of this platform. And it struck me that... At the Second Vatican Council, there were an awful lot of folks who kind of assumed that the Church would be proclaiming a fifth Marian dogma, that they would proclaim as a dogma of the faith Mary as mediatrix of all graces. And as we know, that didn't happen. In fact, the uh, encyclical on the Blessed Virgin Mary was scrapped and added instead to the uh, Constitution on the Church to present Mary primarily as the role model of Christians, which of course she is. Okay, nothing against them putting her in the, uh, you know, uh, the, the encyclical on the church or representing her as the mother of the church and as the model Christian. All of that is true. But I think there was a little bit of correction here with John Paul II that he puts out this pastoral plan in one thing and the next year he gave Mary her own document <laughs> and then showed how it all works together. But it is, it's all about holiness, you know. And right now we're living in this time with the coronavirus and there are a lot of people and I was looking at stuff on YouTube just this morning. There are a lot of people uh, that are convinced, they're absolutely convinced, uh, or at least tempted, to believe that the end of the world is right around the corner. Now, of course, God only knows. The world could end today. Uh, the point is to be ready. But when we study the glorious history of the Catholic Church, it does give us reason to hope, 
that there will be a restoration, not only of the church, but of civilization, Christian civilization. And we can hope that it'll be a civilization, not just like that which was uh, uh, first seen in, you know, blossomed in, in the high Middle Ages, but one that reaches even newer and greater heights of justice and holiness. And does, does that seem impossible to you? Well, what did Jesus say? Yes, for men it is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. So would it take a miracle? Well, again, Christendom was a miracle. The Middle Ages saw this great blossoming of, of Catholic society, uh, Catholic culture. But the seeds of that culture were sown in the blood of the apostles and martyrs. It's a fact of history. And like Aquinas says, there's no arguing with a fact. But who, living under the persecution of the mighty Roman Empire, would ever dream that such a thing as Christendom was even possible? I, I'll tell you, the early Christians weren't looking forward to the church becoming some big, important uh, uh, influencer on culture and replacing the, the empire with Christendom. They were convinced that the end of the world was near. These Christians that were hearing Mass in the catacombs for fear of uh, being arrested and thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, you know, they, they, were, they were pretty sure that things were, were uh, about to, you know, Jesus was coming back soon. And even when those persecutions ended, even when the empire itself became Christian, the seat of the empire moved to Constantinople and, and Rome was left to fend for itself and be overrun by barbarians. Who among those Christians would have said, well, one day right here on earth, there will be a great culture where, uh, you know, every, where all of the laws and customs and everything come from the Catholic Church? That it would have been inconceivable to them. Inconceivable. <laughs> so we're going to take a first step, though. We're going to take our first step towards that restoration which was the hope of St. John Paul II, when we recognize that the truths of Christian revelation can do more than organize the Catholic Church or provide uh, guidance, personal, or Christians' personal guidance towards heaven, you know, when the Church influences culture and not the other way around, which unfortunately is happening right now, but when the Church is influencing culture, when it happened in the past, um, the truth spread beyond the four walls of the church and directly influenced the temporal order. People today do not realize, especially people who are calling for tearing down Western civilization, don't realize that the things that they hold dear, the principles that they believe in, are in fact Christian principles and that we are just, we're you know, running on the fumes of that um, great society. Now, St. Pius X talked about this, this restoration that was his motto, to restore all things in Christ. And he said, civilization doesn't need to be invented. <laughs> we, don't have to, we don't have to come up with a new world order, right? The city, the new city says, doesn't need to be built in the clouds because it existed and it exists. And it is the Catholic civilization, the Catholic city. We need only to reestablish it and incessantly restore it on its natural and divine foundations to restore all things in Christ. And that's precisely what John Paul II said. It's not a matter of a new program. The program already exists, and it's our program for the third millennium. All right, back with lots more on No Nonsense Catholic. Stay with us.
Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need Covenant Eye to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code, the NPR, to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.covenanteyes.com code VMPR live porn free thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio thank you God bless you keep the faith Jesus said in Matthew 26 stay awake and pray that you may not enter into temptation According to St. Ephraim, Jesus, who feared nothing, experienced fear and asked to be freed from death, although he knew it was impossible. How much more must we persevere in prayer before temptation assails us, so that we may be freed when the test has come? May God grant that we may withstand temptation and carry out his will in all things. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. The confusion stops here. Before we go on to talk about um, the essay from Benedict XVI uh, that he put out last year, there's something I wanted to, to remind you about. And that is, when we launched this program, No Nonsense Catholic, back in April of this year, uh, I, I placed the apostolate under the, uh, uh, the mantle of Our Lady, especially under her title, Our Lady of Good Help, and also under the intercession of St. John Paul II. Now, I chose Our Lady of Good Help. You know, if you know anything about me, that I've been for many years promoting devotion to Our Lady under the title of Our Lady of Good Success. You know that um, our the blanket apostolate here that all these podcasts are a part of is uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, another title of Our Lady. But I chose Our Lady of Good Help, not only because the shrine of Our Lady of Good Help is the only um, official, the only recognized, uh, approved Marian apparition site in the United States, but also because of her message. And her message was to teach catechism. She told the visionary Adele Breeze, teach the children what they need to know for salvation. Now, this studio that I'm sitting right now, of course, you only ever see a little part of it if you're watching on YouTube. There's a studio next door where Terry does Terry and Jesse show. There's the control room and, and so forth. 
But this this is an outbuilding on the campus of the Sacred Heart Chapel. It was built back in 1910, and this building was originally the carriage house, uh, and later the garage uh, for the for the chapel. And the wall behind me used to be a big barn door where you could you know you could push a carriage inside, or you could maybe drive in an automobile. But the priests of the parish quickly decided that they had a more important uh, function for this building to serve, and they made it a classroom for the children of the parish to learn their catechism. So this room, 100 years ago, the room that I'm sitting right now, sitting in right now, there would have been a priest teaching the Baltimore Catechism to the children. And, and, you know, and that's the thing. Catechesis is the heart of our religion. You know, well, I shouldn't say that. The heart of our religion is a relationship with God, to know, love, and serve him. But you can't love or serve God unless you know him. And that's why catechesis is so important. And that's why catechesis is not just for children. St. John Paul said that catechism is for adults of every age, including the elderly, no less than for children and adolescents and the young, because it's all about knowing God. Now, John Paul II was the pope when I converted. So as far as I'm concerned, he's the first pope. You know, he's, the only, he's the only one that I had, uh, had ever had paid any attention to or known anything about. Uh, and he left the church um, an enduring legacy of no-nonsense teaching. And some of this is couched in, in dense language, and there's, his writings are quite voluminous. But there are many, many things that are very, you know, these themes that emerge that no pretense of, of, you know, the progressives is ever going to be able to obscure. And so I entrusted no-nonsense Catholic to his intercession. And I thought that I wanted to share uh, uh, some words of comfort in uh, these times of COVID-19 from John Paul II. Uh, for all of those who are suffering with the coronavirus, you know, uh, for those of us who are still under lockdown, uh, for those of us who are suffering from complaints and illnesses that can't get treatment, from the various injustices uh, that have been uh, imposed upon us by uh, the government and so forth, and loss of work and isolation and anxiety. Uh, the tens of thousands of people who are going to suffer and die from the flu because they didn't get treatment or, or you know, are going to die from cancer because they didn't get screened because uh, of the lockdown. All of these people all of the, that are suffering, and that might be you, um, certainly the effects of the lockdown have affected us all. And John Paul II reminds us of this important truth. He said, Christ suffers with us. When we suffer, Christ suffers with us, enabling us to share our pain with him. United to the suffering of Christ, human suffering becomes a means of salvation. You know, people always, whenever there's uh, any, like a pandemic, any kind of thing, right now, um, out behind this wall again, the uh, Reverend the San Gabriel Valley. I grew up here in the town north of here called Glendora, and my beloved foothills are ablaze right now. And most of you know, huge swaths of the state are on fire. And we have the coronavirus, and we have the lockdown, we have the, the riots and all of the unrest, and people ask, why, why does God let this happen? You know, but we will never know this side of eternity, how many souls have been saved precisely by embracing the suffering that God has seen fit to allow in their lives. And John Paul II, he reminds us, pain, he says, accepted with faith, becomes the doorway to the mystery of the Lord's redemptive suffering. 
a suffering that no longer takes away peace and happiness since it is illuminated by the splendor of the resurrection. And then finally, as always, he brings us to Mary. You remember our good Lord gave uh, Mary to all of us to be our mother. Behold your mother, he said to John the Apostle, who represented us all. John Paul says, at the foot of the cross, Mary, made the mother of humanity, suffers in silence, participating in her son's suffering, ready to intercede so that every person may obtain salvation. May she help every Christian to witness that the only authentic answer to pain, suffering, and death is Christ our Lord, who died and rose for us. Amen. Not one answer among many. Not the preferred answer. Christ is the only authentic answer to pain and suffering and death. And that's no nonsense. All right. From one pope to another, from our saint, uh, John Paul II, to our Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, congratulations and best wishes are in order to our erstwhile Holy Father, as he is now the longest living pope in history. He has lived to a, a, a riper old age than any of his predecessors. And in honor of that milestone, um, I was reminded that I wanted to return to this essay that was published last year, back in uh, April of 2019. And it was... Uh, really Benedict XVI offering his thoughts about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church and the crisis of pedophilia. And, well, not even pedophilia. I, I, that's, I'm buying into the press's term. It was never really about pedophilia, was it? It was, more, it was about homosexuality and ephebophilia, if anything, which is quite different from pedophilia. The, the point being that uh, he offered this essay and it is an essay in three parts, and it's quite staggering what he shares. Now, it, the first part of the essay talks about the cause of the scandal, which he puts down to, in part to the sexual revolution of the 1960s, and then the effect of that on priestly formation in life, and then the third part is what the church's response to this crisis should be. Now, all of this, like I say, has really been said before by various commentators and, you know, certain courageous priests and whatnot, but never by somebody as highly placed or highly respected as the Pope Emeritus. Our Lady of Good Success, who I mentioned just a moment ago, prophesied 400 years ago that there'd be a great crisis of faith and morals in the world and in the church. It doesn't take a prophet to tell you there's going to be a crisis of faith and morals in the world because there always is. But a crisis of faith and morals in the church, this is, this is news. And she said it would be, reach a critical point after the middle of the 20th century. And I've often pointed out that the first half of the 20th century was no picnic. You have the First World War. You have the Spanish flu, which was a pandemic that actually killed millions of people. Uh, it didn't just throw the fear of God into them. It actually took their lives. And then we also had uh, the stock market crash of 1929. And which led to worldwide depression, and then a second world war, and and we know we now live under the under the threat, you know, the, the detonation of the of the first atomic bomb and, and the ongoing threat of nuclear annihilation that came with it. But at the midpoint, what happened? What happened after the middle of the twentieth century? Well, we call it the nineteen sixties, right? The sixties. I was there, 
And, and I can tell you, because I was there, that what we think of as the 60s, um, you know, with the hippies and the drugs and the, and the sexual revolution and all that, really started in earnest in 1967 in the so-called Summer of Love. And then a year later in Europe, the, you know, the, the generation of 68, they call it, or the, the revolution of 68. So uh, the, the 60s, the way we think of it, the way we remember it, really spilled over into the early 70s, um, you know, and, and Roe v. Wade and all of that. So the sexual revolution, social upheaval, the rejection of authority, breakdown of traditional values, uh, the family, widespread acceptance of hardcore pornography and easy divorce and followed by the legalization of abortion. Pope Benedict says, in the years, the 20 years from 1960 to 1980, the previously normative standards regarding sexuality collapsed entirely. It's a pretty major point because you're talking about like all of human history. You know, and then in this 20-year period, the whole thing collapsed. And he talks a little about sex education and how this, uh, you know, that revolution, the cultural revolution affected young people. He said part of, you know, the, the feature of the revolution of 68 was that pedophilia was then also diagnosed as allowed and appropriate. And people forget the, the impact that psychology has had on, you know, these events. He says, for young people in the church, but not only for them, this was in many ways a difficult time. He says, I have always wondered how young people in this situation could approach the priesthood and accept it with all its ramifications. The extensive collapse of the next generation of priests in those years and the very high number of laicizations were a consequence of these developments. But here's what's, what, what struck me. He says, and I quote, at the same time, Independently of this development, Catholic moral theology suffered a collapse that rendered the church defenseless against these changes in society. He says, I will try and outline briefly the trajectory of this development. He does that. But let me repeat that. This is, this is staggering. Catholic moral theology suffered a collapse that rendered the church defenseless against the changes in society. The church, according to Benedict XVI, is defenseless against these moral problems because moral theology has collapsed. That is a shocking admission, and we're going to talk about what it means when we come back with lots more right here on No Nonsense Catholic. Stay with us. Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest, I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. You That's know, right. If God gave us a lot, you know, and I'm, I have the blessing of listening to all this, and I just want to call all the people, you know, I've got five kids, you know, and I don't make a lot of money, and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We gotta. We have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. Amen. You're a good man, brother. 30 years old, 29 years old. 
five kids, and I thank you guys. But everybody else, man, get on fire. Fight for the truth, man. I know what I'm telling you guys. There's I no love it. Out there. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, St. Paul says, So there abide faith, hope, and love, these three. According to St. Ignatius of Antioch, faith is the beginning and love is the end. And God is the two of them brought into unity. Then comes everything else that makes up a Christian. May God grant that we may attain all the virtues that make for authentic followers of His Son. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Talking about an essay put out by Benedict XVI back in April of last year, uh, offering his thoughts about the sex abuse crisis facing the church. And I dropped a little bomb right before we went on break. He says in this uh, essay that in the 1960s, when you know uh, morality was falling apart in our culture, he said independently, but at the same time, Catholic moral theology suffered a collapse that rendered the church defenseless against these changes in society. That is, that's huge. That's a staggering statement. And, and he goes on. Something that you never hear from the higher echelons of the church. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, the, the traditional Catholics have been talking about this for 40 years, but you don't hear this coming out of, um, you know, uh, the Vatican. You don't hear this coming out of Rome. You don't hear this coming from uh, the premier Catholic theologian of the 20th century who was not only prefected the doctrine of the faith, but also Pope. Until the Second Vatican Council, Catholic moral theology was largely founded on natural law while sacred scripture was cited for background or substantiation. In the Council's struggle for a new understanding of revelation, the natural law option was largely abandoned and a moral theology based entirely on the Bible was demanded. Hello? This is a staggering admission. The Council was, quote, struggling for a new understanding of revelation? Because the church's understanding of Revelation was what? Was inadequate? Was, was, was inappropriate? Was insufficient? You know, it begs the question, why was there a need for a new understanding of Revelation? But it addresses something I have long wondered about. They abandoned the natural law, he says, and, and tried to, to piece together a, a new kind of moral theology just based on Scripture. So, so... I ask myself, how can a theologian, how can a highly educated man who's, who's a priest or a bishop, right, with the grace of his vocation and, and, a, and an education that is the, the, the envy of the world, how can he be confused about a basic moral issue, you know? 
And Pope Benedict XVI, he puts his finger on it and then he presses down. Moral theology in the church collapsed after the council because the, the church's struggle for a new understanding of revelation you know, brought theologians to abandon the natural law as the foundation of moral theology. Catholic moral theology, quote, Benedict XVI, Catholic moral theology suffered a collapse that rendered the church defenseless against changes in society. It explains so much. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas quotes from the scriptures and the fathers, of course, in, in the Summa Theologia, but he does not scruple to turn for insight to Aristotle or Maimonides or Avicenna. He quotes from Christians and pagans and Jews and even Muslims anytime that they succinctly expounded the truth. And this is the Middle Ages. You know, th this is centuries before Vatican II, you know, says the church rejects nothing that is true and good in other religions, right? Well, that's always been true. And Aquinas knew that. He already knew, as we should all know, and as the Vatican, Second Vatican Council confirmed, that all truth comes from God. All truth has its ultimate source in God because God is truth. So Pope Benedict goes on to explain how morality cannot be expressed systematically from the Bible alone. What a shock. What are you saying? Are you saying scripture alone isn't sufficient? Who would have thunk? You know, I, I wonder if that's why Protestant seminaries don't even teach moral theology. You know, it's, that's another uh, kind of revelation that I had a number of years ago talking to Scott Hahn. I suspect it was right around the turn of the century, and it was the big debate about gay marriage uh, that was going on in this country at the time. And, and I asked him, well, you know, what was the position of the moral, Protestant moral theology? You know, because Scott, he, he uh, was an ordained Presbyterian minister before he became a, a Catholic theologian before his conversion. So he went to uh, the very prestigious Protestant seminary, Gordon-Conwell. You know, and it's a, it is a, a prestigious school. It's well-respected. And I thought, okay, this is, this is the heart of this sort of mainstream evangelical Protestantism. So what did they say about it? And he said, you know, they don't have moral theology. And I was taken aback. But then it dawned on me, well, you know, if you really believe that all you have to do to be saved is accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and that you have the assurance of salvation, that, you know, once saved, always saved. Once you've given your heart to Jesus, there's, there's no turning back. And no matter what you do, like Luther says, you commit a, a hundred murders and commit adultery a hundred times every day. And it doesn't matter. If sin is not going to send you to hell, then anything goes. Why, why, would you, why would you need moral theology? So, again, according to Bennett XVI, he says, in the end, it was chiefly the hypothesis that morality was to be exclusively determined by the purposes of human action that prevailed. The hypothesis that morality was to be exclusively determined by the purposes of human action is the one that prevailed. It kind of prevailed amongst Catholic theologians, you understand. He goes on to say, while the old phrase, the end justifies the means, was not confirmed in this crude form, its way of thinking had become definitive. He's saying that Catholic theologians have thrown out the natural law, embraced Scripture alone, which is the most pernicious heresy of the last 500 years, and then taken as their philosophical maxim, the end justifies the means. He says, consequently, there could no longer... Do you understand how staggering the implications of that are, that that, that should come from the pen of Benedict XVI? 
Consequently, he says, there could no longer be anything that constituted an absolute good, any more than anything fundamentally evil. There could only be relative value judgments. There was no longer the absolute good, but only the relative better, contingent on the moment and on circumstances. Did you hear that? Is this microphone on? Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, erstwhile prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, a.k.a. former High Inquisitor of the Holy Office, Der Panzer Cardinal, God's Rottweiler, etc., etc., just said that the definitive thinking of Catholic moral theologians today is the end justifies the means. Call it situation ethics, call it morally exclusive, uh, morality exclusively determined by the purposes of human action, Call it relative value judgments contingent on the circumstances of the moment. Call it whatever you want. But what it is is a formal break with the tradition of the church on the part of Catholic theologians. And he goes on to cite this smoking gun, this document, the Declaration of the Cologne Declaration of 1989, which was signed by 15 Catholic professors of theology. And and they were complaining about the tension, quote-unquote tension, between the Episcopal Magisterium and the task of theology. Oh, all all that truth making it hard on us to to make up, uh, you know, in our struggle for a new understanding of Revelation. Right? Like I say, and that's, that's precisely the problem. You don't start with Scripture. You start with the teaching of the Church. In the end, Pope Benedict says, the hypothesis that the Magisterium of the Church should have final competence, that is infallibility, only in matters concerning the faith itself gained widespread acceptance. In this view, questions concerning morality should not fall within the scope of infallible decisions of the magisterium of the church. So, what they're saying is that the Pope, or an ecumenical council in union with the Pope, cannot be uh, infallible in matters of faith and morals, but only in faith alone. Gee, scripture alone and faith alone, it's sounding familiar to me. Uh, this, of course, is the secular ideal that, that grew out of Protestantism, that, that the religious faith is entirely private, that the religion is just it's between you and your God. You go, you worship whoever, whatever you want, believe what you please, just so long as you realize that religion has no place in the public square. It has no right to speak definitively about morality. It has no business uh, dictating the way that people behave or the way that people should live. There are no moral absolutes, which is pretty handy. You know, I mean, if, if you happen to be a theologian in a university and a bishop and you want to be a Christian and also a sexual predator, this is a fine way to believe. And it explains a great deal. But it's not legitimate Catholic theology. It is rather a merely transparent rationalization for sin. Benedict XVI is uh, um, famous for his insistence on the hermeneutic of continuity. That what we have to, you know, we have to interpret Vatican II in light of the 2,000 years of tradition that preceded it, and not upon, uh, you know, we don't reinterpret the Church's tradition in light of Vatican II. And he also says explicitly, Pope John Paul II knew very well the situation of moral theology and followed it closely, commissioned work, on an encyclical that would set these things right again, published under the title of Veritatis Splendor in 1993, and it triggered vehement backlashes on the part of moral theologians. Before it, the Catechism of the Catholic Church already had persuasively presented, in a systematic fashion, morality as proclaimed by the Church. He says JP2 knew that he must leave no doubt 
about the fact that the moral calculus involved in balancing goods must respect a final limit, that there are goods that are never subject to trade-offs. There are values which never must be abandoned for a greater value and even surpass the preservation of life itself. There is martyrdom, says Benedict. God is about more than mere physical survival. A life that would be bought by the denial of God is a life based on a final lie. It is a non-life. Were you aware, is this mic on? Were you aware that our Pope Emeritus said all these things? Only a year ago, in April of 2019, this was written. It says there's a minimum set of morals which is indissoluble linked to the foundational principle of faith, which must be defended if faith is not to be reduced to a mere theory, but rather to be recognized in its claim to concrete life. Friends, he goes on, and there's, there's too much to Im- unpack in the, the last couple of minutes here. I, I prepared a great deal more for this program than, than we were able to get through because I become passionate about it because what he said is so very, very important. So we're going to continue this next time. And when we do, we're going to be talking about um, what happened, in, according to Benedict XVI, regarding the theology at the Second Vatican Council and then what followed and how um, it affected the crisis in the church, and more importantly, what to do about it. Always light at the end of the tunnel in the Catholic faith. Remember, we read the, uh, I've read the last chapter of the book, and we win it. <laughs> okay, so lots of reason to rejoice always, regardless of our circumstances. And I just want to say thanks for being with us. I can't believe that uh, the hour went by so quickly. Look forward to doing it all again next week. And until then, Um, hoping that you will have a wonderful COVID-free seven days. Enjoy the um, remembrance of the tragic events of September 11th and pray for our country, for our church, and if you can spare one for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We appreciate your spiritual and financial support. We couldn't do it without you. So one last time, thank you again. And until next time, may God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.